Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well today. Hey, uh, I told you last week that our, um, our elders were going to be meeting on Monday. And uh, part of what we would take up was... Um, how River Bluff can begin to respond to uh, relief efforts in the Bahamas because of Hurricane Dorian. And after we spent some time in prayer and kind of looking at options, we, uh, we went with one of our, our ministry partners that we uh, have a long-term partnership with, Water Missions. We, we looked at others, um, but we made the decision that the, probably the most immediate need, and it's going to be an ongoing chronic need, is the need for uh, fresh drinking water. Uh, there, many of uh, the Bohemians, their their water source is rainwater that they collect, and um, most of their uh, sources for containing that were, were completely destroyed, wiped out, and so we are um, we we want to do this. So we're going to be taking up a special offering uh, throughout the remainder of this month. And if you will do this, if you want to contribute to this, uh, you can just write on an envelope, you know, your name and amount and that kind of stuff. But just write Dorian on it, um, so that we know how to designate that and get that. Uh, and we'll make sure that gets directly to work. You can make the church the the checkout to the church. We'll make sure that that gets to, um, to water missions and uh, we'll have an opportunity to help. We, depending on how they distribute uh, the, to the greatest needs, we may be able to, um, and here's the interesting thing, right now there's a gift match, so up to a million dollars, the monies that we collect will be basically doubled it'll be matched and so um, th- th- I thought that was really cool for God to work that out in, in this moment so um, the more generous we give the more uh, that that giver is going to give as well so this your, whatever you give will be doubled is one way to think about it in its efforts um, we, we, we may actually be uh, partnering to, to buy a huge unit or we may be buying several smaller units for individuals to use but right now um, the, the systems that they have to use are the reverse osmosis systems that because about the only supply of water they have around them now is salt water and so that's got to be kind of you know changed over and so what we want to do is we there may be more that we're going to do we may be engaged uh, later in sending teams and so just keep your eyes and ears open for that but uh, what I want us to do right now and I hope you are already doing and will continue to do is uh, one is search your heart to see what God would have you give and then secondly let's pray uh, together right now and then in an ongoing way for, um, for those folks who are suffering. So let's pray. Father God, we come in the powerful name of Jesus that is more powerful than any storm that this broken earth can generate. We believe that, we know that, we've seen it. And so God, we come. Some of us having lived through a storm, not, not nearly as even destructive as as Dorian was, but uh, God, we, we remember and we know what it was like to kind of live through that and get back online and get moving again. And so God, we come with a little bit of understanding, praying for, praying for people, God, who are hurting, who are decimated. God, we, we still think about the numbers of people whose lives were lost. The numbers of people who lost a brother, a sister, a mother, a father. We, so many of us have seen those images and heard those stories and our hearts are just broken. So God, we pray in us 
that you will not let it slip off into the next news cycle, God, but you would keep it prominent in our hearts and we would come before you on behalf of those who are suffering and that, God, as we keep it fresh in our hearts and minds, we would respond to you. So help us, God. Stir our hearts towards the sacrificial generosity to do good in a world of brokenness, God. To love on those who in so many ways have lost everything to help rebuild. And so, God, I pray for your spirit to move on us and our generosity that we would be sacrificial in our giving towards that work. And we give you thanks in advance, God, to what you're going to do with what little we will give or what lot we give, God. We know that you have the capacity to do incredible things with the smallest of gifts. And so we come to you now, God, giving thanks for the confidence we have that as we sang a moment ago, you can, you can bring blooms out of a wilderness, out of a desert. We thank you that that's who you are and we come to worship you and give thanks to you now. As we look to your word, open our hearts and minds. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can either turn them on or you can open them up. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 6 uh, today. And one of the great challenges when we come to God's Word, especially to the Gospels, is um, the challenge of context. Uh, the context that Jesus was doing his ministry in, the context that Jesus was uh, doing his teaching in. Because see, every, every question... Every question that Jesus answered, every, every parable that he gave, every um, problem that he solved, every miracle that he worked, it was all done in the context of his culture. And that culture was a very Jewish culture. And it was, that, uh, it was kind of under the, the watchful eye of a conquering empire, the Romans. And so that was kind of the context for, for, for all that Jesus did and, and all that he taught. And so we need to be captured by that. So when we read God's word, when we study, when we come to the gospels, we've got to understand that's what's going on. As we study and see the details, it's important to remember. And I like learning from people who are experts in that field. People who really study or credentialed theologians who have studied deeply the context of the culture of that day um, that we might, I might better understand. I love learning from them so that I might better understand the context of what Jesus, it helps me understand his teaching better. It helps me understand his actions better even. And so several years ago I read, uh, one of the books I've read on this was uh, written by uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner and the book was just simply entitled Jewish Spirituality. Jewish Spirituality. Now, one of the, the it provided a lot of insight for me of, of Jesus' listeners in that day and onlookers to his ministry and how they would have received and probably even responded to, to the things he taught and the things that he did. Um, and one of the, the things that was really interesting to me is the differences between how the Jews of the first century would respond to God's word compared to the way we do because we have kind of different ideologies because of the cultures being different. And one factor that really, again, jumped out at me was this, this idea of how, how they received God's word and how we received God's word. And he went on to explain that for the Jews in the first century, there was really no such thing as this idea of a spiritual life. 
There wasn't this, this concept of, of a spiritual life. In fact, the Hebrew language of Jesus' day did not even have a word that we could translate as spiritual life. A phrase that could, could be translated because for, for Jesus' audience, everything was spiritual. Everything was the spiritual life. Now just think about, think about the ramifications of that for a minute. If everything is spiritual, then we don't, we don't separate. We don't segment. We wouldn't, we wouldn't compartmentalize because faith not only is the foundation for everything, it's the umbrella under which everything sits. If that were true, if everything is, is spiritual. But see, our culture and, and most of us who live in this culture... You know, we, we, we are content with having a compartment for our spiritual life. We're, we're content with that. We, we, we like our lives segmented, compartmentalized, so those things don't necessarily touch. We like to think of ourselves as compartmentalized thinkers in many ways. But again, to the Jews in this, their teaching and hearing of Jesus, everything was spiritual. Everything fell under that, that spiritual category. You didn't go up to somebody in Jesus' day and say, Hey, how's your spiritual life? That wouldn't have made any sense. They didn't have a word for that. You just asked, How is your life? How, how, are, how are you doing? Because everything was spiritual. Now, just think for a minute. You know, not needing an adjective, spiritual. That everything was just, was spiritual. How would that shape your faith how would it reshape your faith now how would it change your life if you if everything began with that assumption if if you if you operated out of let's say every everything you're struggling with every every question that you're wrestling with every decision that you're dealing with was spiritual it wasn't it wasn't something that you could you know compartmentalize neatly away well i think if that were true for us it would be it would change life drastically I think all of our lives would be changed dramatically. So I want to do this today. I want to kind of help you and, and me step into the mindset of the hearers of Jesus, the, the witnesses of Jesus in the first century. When we go to John 6 in a moment, I want you to understand it in the context of, of everything was spiritual. And so I would like to use the image of a chest of drawers. Or maybe you call this, what do you, you call this a dresser at your house? A dresser? Some people call them a chest of drawers. I, I want us to think, I want you to think of your life as this chest of drawers. And each of the drawers here representing different areas and aspects of your life that we, we like to keep organized and maybe separated and, and maybe kind of compartmentalized. One of the drawers, you're going to get to see it, it's going to come up on the, the screen. One of the drawers would be your work drawer. And this would be your 9 to 5 and, you know, you, you might represent the medical community with a stethoscope. There's a laptop in here. There's, there's a pipe wrench for Joe the plumber, you know. Um, there, there's a, a tape measure. Th those, are, those are all the things that might, might show up in your work drawer. You, if you're a student... If you go to school, then your full-time job, think of the, this is your nine-to-five job uh, drawer, kind of, okay? Think of it in that term. So if you're a student, then this is, you know, th that's your work drawer. 
Okay, you go into school, you'd have books in here, you know, taking tests. That would be your, your work. The next drawer that we come to in here, we have, um, we have a cake topper, wedding cake topper. This is actually from our wedding cake. You know, I have a picture frame in here. There are other things that you could put in here. You know, maybe a creative memories album or something like that. But th this drawer here represents relationships. Okay, what that drawer, we all have relationships, family relationships, friends that we do life with, connections that we have with people. So this is your relationship drawer. This, this drawer down here, oh, this is recreation. We got a soccer ball, okay? Anybody want to catch? No, we won't do that. The, uh, you know, you got DVDs, got, got a book, got a travel and leisure magazine in this drawer. And th this, is, this is kind of your recreation drawer. This is kind of your rest and leisure drawer that, you know, that, that's part of, part of our lives. Over here, we'll start down at the bottom on this side. This is, um, this is your political views drawer. And so, you know, you're going to wear your, your t-shirt because you want to, you know, you want to be a patriot. And so you, you wear, wear that and, you know, we, we think of the Supreme Court with a gavel. And the, um, I, th there was one picture that I saw. I, I looked for some uh, current, you know, bumper stickers and I thought, no, I'd get bipartisan. I don't want to get in all that. So, but I did see one picture. I, I meant to get it and I forgot to download it. But there was this guy from New York and... He had bumper stickers all on the back of his car. And what he had was a collection of bumper stickers of the losers of presidential races for like the past 60 years. It was like all of the losers. Now, that's, those were, I mean, that's his political worldview or something like that. I don't, but see, we all, we all have kind of a politics drawer. And, you know, the kind of, we try to be careful with that. You know, sometimes because people get in trouble with that. So we, we kind of, we kind of, th th this drawer here, this is your financial drawer. You know, in here there's a IRS instructions for your 1040 to fill it out. There's, you know, a couple of dollars in here. There's, there's a wallet. There's some credit cards. There's your financial piece, university DVDs. You really need these. There's a class starting today. Not too late to help you with this with this drawer here, you know, financial drawer. And then there's then there's this drawer. There's our spiritual drawer. There's you know, in this crowd, you know, most everybody in the world, I think, thinks of themselves some way as a spiritual being of some sort. But in this in this drawer, uniquely, there would probably be a Bible. Um, there would probably be some some imagery of the cross that connects to you and God's grace and that kind of thing. But th this is the spiritual drawer. And so we have, we have all of these compartments, all of these drawers that kind of speak to our lives. You may have some more. They may be, may be a little different. But now remember, in Jesus' day, there were no drawers. Because every, everything was, was spiritual. Now, one of the things that, that I've come to understand, I've been, I've been in, in vocational ministry for over 35 years now. And one of the things that I've seen is that when you come here to a gathering like this, for the most part, you expect that drawer to get opened. You just expect somebody's going to kind of open the, you know, your spiritual life drawer and monkey around in there. And you're pretty cool with that. You know, you don't mind that. You think, yeah, I need, I need, I need this, you know, kind of waxed and washed up a little bit and prettied up. But here's the deal. When somebody starts messing around in some of these other drawers... You know, you, you start talking about maybe, maybe relationships. And you talk about, you know, if you're single, what your sexuality is supposed to be like in those relationships. 
you know, you talk about work. You talk about living with integrity. You talk about what it's like not to, to cheat your employee of, of a good day's work. Or as an employer, to treat those you employ with respect and dignity. You know, you start opening these drawers and people start getting a little upset. And, and baby, you open that drawer, the financial drawer, you run a real risk of getting your finger slammed. And I know this. I know this. But remember, again, when Jesus was teaching, when Jesus was living, when Jesus was moving and encountering people, Jesus was not living in this compartmentalized world. Jesus was living with a crowd where everything was spiritual. There weren't, there weren't all of these compartments. Now, the, the truth is, I know that most, most people show up thinking about this top drawer. You know, thinking about their spiritual life and they're hoping something's going to happen there, you know. But you, you really don't want necessarily for, to get meddled in in some of these other places and spaces. You, you really can get maybe a little defensive talking about some of, some of those other things. Uh, you know, I think about, you know, how many of you read about Drew Brees? Drew Brees just went recently on, you know, he, he came out and supported the Bring Your Bible to School campaign. He got, he was working with Focus on the Family. He got attacked in so many ways because he was just saying, I think it would be good. And people were saying, you know, don't, don't mix your work, don't compartmentalize. And we live in a culture that just says that so very, very often. That this stuff here, that's fine for Sunday. But don't bring that to work. Don't bring that to school. Don't, 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 don't talk about it in politics. We want all of these things compartmentalized. We don't want them touching. See, it's, it's no longer just separation of church and state. It's separation of church and the bedroom. It's separation of church and the office. It's separation of church and the, the movie theater. It's separation of church and school. And it especially becomes true when we talk about separating the church from finances. We just want to keep these things separated. And so I get it. That's kind of the prevailing culture today. So I understand coming to church and people getting uncomfortable when you start talking about money and so many times after I do a message on money one of the things that happens is I find out there are first time guests with us and they come saying that's all those people ever talk about is money. Well if you're a first time guest with us we don't want your money. In fact we have a special gift for you. And we would love for you as the, the, the time's over with, just go down this B hallway. We call that the B hallway right there. Go all the way down that hallway. You'll walk into our atrium to your left. There's our connection room. And um, they have a gift for you. We don't want to take, we want you to be gifted today if you're our guest. And uh, they, they'll greet you warmly and just want to get to know you. And so we know that people have struggle with this. But one of the things that you need to understand when you start talking about faith and especially the Christian faith, you can't not talk about all the drawers. You, you, you can't. Now, you might have some other kind of faith and not have to talk about the other drawers. But see, when you say, oh, no, that, one, that one's off limits and that one's off limits, 
you're no longer talking about the Christian faith. It is no longer following Jesus. Because remember, for Jesus, it's all of life. There's no compartmentalization. If, if he, people that go through baptism, many of you here have been baptized as believers, saying, I am following Jesus. And oftentimes what you will say, he is my Savior and my what? Lord. Lordship means is that you come into your relationship with Jesus saying no more compartmentalization. Everything spiritual, Jesus. Jesus, you are the chest that all of my life slides into. I'm bringing it all to you, Jesus. Everything is now spiritual. Everything is. And so the Bible has a lot to say about what's in these drawers in our life. Because everything's spiritual. The Bible has a lot to say about our sexuality, about our relationships, about our work. And one of the things that the Bible has the most to say about and talk about is our finances. Things that pertain to money. And you may not know this or believe this, but it was actually one of Jesus' favorite topics. Jesus talked a lot about money. He talked more about money than he did heaven and hell combined. Jesus talked about it. 16 of his 38 parables were about money. Jesus using that area, that drawer of our life to help us understand something powerful about his father. So I want to take that context, everything spiritual, and I want to go to John 6 now. Okay? Go to John 6 with this. We're going to be reading, starting in verse 2. We're going to read through verses uh, all the way through 13. Verse 2, it says, And a large crowd was following him, talking about Jesus, because they saw signs that he was, what he was doing with the sick. Jesus was healing sick people. And so this crowd starts forming, starts gathering. So Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast, this is context. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. And so lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Verse 6, he said this to test him. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he was about to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, just so you know, that there are women and children there in that crowd too, but about 5,000 men sat down. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments of the five loaves left by those who had eaten. This is, this is the word of the Lord. Now, I want to I ask a couple of questions before we move on much further. Because we're going to talk about this drawer. This financial drawer. So here's the first question about your financial drawer. How much is in it? Turn to your... No, don't. Don't want to know. That's rhetorical. How much is in it? 
Some of you would say, Joe, there's nothing but IOUs and bills in my drawer. Some of you would say, well, pretty good. I've done, I've done pretty good. Here's what I think most of us would say. I think most of us would say, well, there's, there's something in my drawer. There, I, got, there, I got some. There, there's, there's some in, in that drawer. There's some, not a lot, maybe, maybe not nothing, but there's some in our drawer, you know, in, in that drawer. And uh, I think we need to be kind of touched by how that makes us feel when we are people. Because I've got a feeling that most of us in here, that would be, that'd probably be our descriptor. We wouldn't say we got a lot. We wouldn't say we have nothing. I think most of us in this room would probably say, I got some. And I think that's really the focus of this encounter from, from John chapter 6. And here's what I think Jesus wanted Philip to get. Remember, it said he was testing Philip. Here's what I think Jesus was trying to get Philip to be moved to. I think he was trying to get Philip to come to understand how to capitalize in life. How do I really capitalize in life? Not look at life through the lens of compartments. And this is just a big idea that I want to throw out today. That's a part of today's message that I hope you're captured by. Is that when we live compartmentalized, when you and I live a compartmentalized life, we'll never capitalize in this life. Not the life that Jesus has planned for you. You will never capitalize if you're living compartmentalized. It just, it will not happen. Now, in John 6, we read this. There was a crowd of about 5,000 men, probably plus minus a little bit, but 5,000 who had gathered. Estimates with women and children, there was probably a crowd of about 12,000 people there. About 12,000. And these people are getting hangry. You know what hangry is? It's when your hunger and your anger begin to meet. Now, for the, I told the 930 service that I'm not nearly as sensitive to hangry as I, with them as I am with you. And so Jesus, I'm guessing this is the 11 o'clock crowd that's showing up for Jesus, you know. And Jesus knows the 11 o'clock crowd is hangrier than the 930 crowd. That's just preaching 101. Jesus knows. And so Jesus looks at this problem, at these hangry people, knowing they're not going to hear him, you know, because they're, think they're hangry. And he, he, he turns to Philip and he says, Philip, where are we to buy bread? Verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? They're hangry. Let's, let's feed them. They're, they're, they're all hungry. They're, they're, there was a legitimate need. Philip, what are we going to do about it? Philip, how are we going to meet this need? And, and then John, I love, add that little, little point in verse 6. He said, Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was just testing Philip. He, he, there's a lesson here that he wants Philip to get. You know, that, and, and, and we see Philip, he's, he's, he's being set up a little bit by Jesus. He really is because Jesus wants him to capture some, be captured by something. And so Jesus says, Philip, this need is incredible. How do, we, how do we fill this need? How do we meet this need? Philip's a really practical guy. We can tell by what he does next. You know, he's just this real practical guy. Verse 7, he says, Jesus, man, even 200 denarii, basically a year's wage, even a year's wage wouldn't get, nobody would, everybody wouldn't even get a little bite. There, there wouldn't even be enough of, of crumbs for, for this size crowd. You know, Jesus, look, money's not there. Jesus, I love your heart. 
you're a really sweet guy for noticing. You know, these people are hungry. It's really nice. But Jesus. Drawer's empty. Jesus is not enough in the drawer. There's nothing we can do about this, Jesus. It's just, it, 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 it's empty. Can't, can't do it. See, when it, when it came to resources to fill up, he factored out the power of God. He compartmentalized. He just, he factored out that all of life is spiritual. And he just looked in, in the drawer. And so, Philip, I believe the test that Jesus was giving Philip that day was helping Philip come to understand a, a rich spiritual truth. Many of you have heard this. Just because you've heard it, I don't know that you know it, so I'm going to repeat it. When God guides, wherever he guides, he provides. When God guides, wherever he guides, wherever he leads you into, whatever he's calling you into, he will provide for you. And he, Jesus is trying to get Philip to see this. And the truth is, I could, I could line people up on this stage who will tell you that. Who will tell you how God provided for them when nothing else would have. When there was no way they, they thought they were, we're sitting, this church has experienced that as a people over and over again. There's a hallway out there with, with a storyline of the way that God has provided where he guided when we didn't have it. You're sitting in a building on dirt that we didn't have money for and God provided. Over and over, that's, that's who God is because where God guides, he provides even when we don't, don't know where. But, but here's the deal kind of on this. We, there's a sense when you start talking about money and you start talking about finances, you know, we, we, we may have even had an experience or two where something like that happens, but it's just so easy to slip away. We get to the place where kind of like Philip, we say, Jesus, that sounds really nice, but I'm looking in and Jesus, it ain't there. And, and we, we kind of step back. It, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, the bank account, the money, the, the drawer is empty. Where God guides, he'll always provide. See, when we walk in obedience to God, his promise is he will take care of us. He promises us that. Where he guides, he always provides. And Philip was starting to learn this on that day. Philip was just starting to learn it. He's just starting to learn it. Now, I think we are too in so many ways. And see, here's the, one of the interesting things. Philip had been walking with Jesus already for a while. He had already seen Jesus turn water, water, H2O, stuff people in the Bahamas don't even have. Watch Jesus turn water into wine. John had seen that. I mean, Philip had seen that. Just not long before this event happened, Philip had witnessed Jesus take a paralytic man and heal him and tell, just by saying, get up and walk. Dude healed and walks. Philip had seen this. And so now there, there's this crowd coming and Jesus says, Philip, what do we need to do? And Philip says, we can't do nothing. There's nothing in the drawer. You know... I don't know about you, but I know that my faith can be that way sometimes. I've seen God do incredible things, and then I'm faced with a challenge, and then my faith fails. I'm still learning some of this myself 
about how big and beautiful and bold God is. And so Philip looks at this and it doesn't make sense to him on paper. He doesn't see how anything here can happen. But here's something that I'm learning. Hope you're learning. We need to understand this. Oftentimes, Jesus does his best work when the numbers don't add up. Oftentimes, Jesus does his best work when the circumstances make no sense. Jesus does his best work in those environments. Folks, that's just biblical truth. That's a reality of anybody who walks with God. No matter what you face, when there seems like there's no way out, oftentimes God does his best work. And this is what's happening in this moment in Philip's life. As I was preparing this, I wondered about churches in America that are closing their doors. I even wondered about River Bluff. How many times has God tried to guide tried to send us out of our buildings into the culture to take the gospel to make a difference in ways that we don't think we can and we look in the drawer and say, God, we can't. God is going to guide and we stand, we get together and we talk about God, guys, God provides and, and we pull back. We won't walk with him there because it wasn't in the budget. It wasn't in a line item. All I'm saying, folks, is this. In those moments, we need to look at God. We need to look at what he's saying. We need to look to see where is he guiding. And don't slam the drawer. Because we tend to do that. Has God ever put something in your heart to do for him? And you looked in the drawer. Has God called you to go with our team to Cuba? Or to Ecuador? Or has God called you to give generously and sacrificially to this special offering? To help those who are struggling? Has God called, put something in your, has God guided you? But you keep looking in the drawer. Don't slam the drawer shut on a call from God. Because you'll miss out. You will miss out. Do you know what the only miracle that's recorded by all four gospel writers are? Which one? Feeding of the 5,000. You can miss out on the beauty and the glory and the wonder and the power and the, the awe of God. If all you do is look in your drawer. Because where God guides, he provides. So when it comes to your finances, I want to encourage you. When you read in God's word, you hear us talk about the tithe, about giving 10% of your income to God. Because it's actually, the tithe means it's his. It's holy to him. It's different from the other 90%. And you look in your drawer and you say, can't do that. Numbers don't add up. Don't make sense. And you're going to miss out on so a great, a beautiful, an unbelievable adventure with God because you slam the drawer shut. You say, well, I got student loans and you know, this broke down and I got that. And you, you keep looking in the drawer. You say it's just mathematically impossible. Let me, let me, let me encourage you to do something. 
When you, when you keep looking in your empty drawer, you keep staring down into the, the abyss. Here's what God says when you look into the abyss. This is the only place. All throughout the Bible, God says, do not put me to the test. Don't do it. Don't test me. Until you get to this drawer. And you look in the abyss and God says, now test me. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, God says, if you will do this, when you look into the abyss and you say it's not there, I'm telling you there's a blessing in the abyss if you will let me in with you. There's a blessing down there. So if you'll let me in, I will, I will come and I will, I will blow your brains. I will just blow your mind. I'll pour out blessings that you can't, can't ever receive. Just don't slam the drawer shut. Be open to letting me move. Don't, don't slam the drawer shut. You know, some of you think there's no way that I'm ever, that this drawer is not going to just be debt. It's not going to say money. It's just going to say debt. Don't, don't believe that. Don't slam the drawer shut. If you need help today, this afternoon, starting at 4, we've got a group uh, going through financial peace that will help you do that. Help you know how to biblically follow God to get, get out of debt because where God guides, he'll provide. He, that's just who he is. And so, Jesus has this little small sidebar conversation with Philip and Philip looks in the drawer and there's nothing there. But Jesus has a plan. And the plan involved another disciple. This disciple's name was Andrew. Now, from what I've read about Andrew in, in other parts of the Gospels, I don't think Andrew was just trying to make Philip look bad. Okay? I don't think Andrew was that guy, you know, where he looked for an opportunity to put somebody else down because Andrew goes to Jesus in, in, in this moment in verse 9 and, and says, Hey, Jesus, there's a boy and he has five barley loaves and two fish. I don't think for a moment that Andrew had gone and, you know, scoured the crowd looking for resources or anything like that. But for some reason, Andrew spots a little boy with his little Avengers lunchbox with some bread and some fish. And he, he, he goes to Jesus with it. And he, he takes, you know, he takes this little boy to, to Jesus. I just imagine, we'll just call the little boy Reggie. Andrew says, hey, Reggie. I noticed in your lunchbox there, dude, you got some bread, you got some fish. Um, how about, you know, I know it's not a lot. I know it's just some, but would you, would you consider taking this to Jesus? And he does. And so with just some fish and just some bread, he comes to Jesus. And you can almost see Aunt, uh, Philip watching this because, I mean, he had to be standing there watching this and saying, Andrew. Really? Dude, 12,000 people. And you're going to waste Jesus' time with five little loaves of bread and two fish? What, 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 what are you thinking? What, what are you thinking? You got, you got some sardines and saltines, man. What, what, look at this. It's not nearly, not nearly enough. And it was true. It wasn't nearly enough. But what was it? It was some. It, 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 it was some. And see, here's the thing. When you bring Jesus your son, Jesus can do a lot. Look at what happens in verse 11. It says, Jesus took the loaves and he gave thanks. And he did with the fish and he distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. As much as they wanted. 
Something unbelievable happened because one little boy would give his psalm to Jesus. He brought it to Jesus. And a miracle beyond miracles took place. So here's the big question that kind of comes out of this today. What are you doing with your psalm? You may not have a lot. You probably have more than nothing. You got some. What are you doing with your psalm? What are you doing with your five loaves and two fish? And here's one of the things I think. I think, again, I think most of us are are in here are people with some. And I think one of the great challenges for people with some in, in our culture is we struggle with being content. I think we just... People with some struggle with being content. Now, I, I have some friends. There's some people in our church who actually have very little. And when Kathy and I first get, got married, we most likely lived below the poverty line. We were probably qualified for a few things, you know. Um, so, I know what it's like to live with, without much. And I, I know some other people. I have some friends who, who have a, a good bit. They, they have a good bit. But I think for the majority of us, most of the people I know are people with some. Now again, just spiritually speaking about this, I think some is maybe one of the most dangerous places to be. And I have some experience with that, so I think I can talk into it. Because those with little, you know what they were? They were just, they're totally dependent on God for their next meal. They know it. And so they live that way, dependent on God. They, they pray for their daily bread. And oftentimes, I've found that they tend to be a little bit more content and sometimes even a little bit more generous because they kind of look at their, their little and they say, well, a little bit out of a little is, you know, maybe it'll help somebody. And so they're a little more generous. And, and the, those few folks that I know that have a lot, some would, might call them them wealthy. The ones that I know, I know this isn't true across the board, but the ones that I know most often are a little more content and generous because they've already got to the place where they realize money does not buy them happiness. They know that and so they they oftentimes tend to be a a, a little more generous. Here's what I've discovered about those of us in the sum category is we're very susceptible to materialism because when you just have some, what do you always want? You want more. When, when what you have is some, what you almost always want is, is some, some more. And it creates within us this spirit of discontent. I don't know, don't, don't out yourself. Um, I don't know how many hypochondriacs we have among us. Um, and I may be doing you a disservice by telling you this. But there are, there's online, there are these websites that you can go to. And you can... Type in your symptoms, and it will give you a diagnosis. I know know the medical community among us is probably, you know, ready to throw stuff at me. But you can type in your symptoms and get a diagnosis, you know. And, you know, that's not a bad deal because some of them are fairly accurate, they say. Some of the the websites are actually fairly accurate. Um, And it could be helpful to make sure you, you know, take your child to the doctor at the appropriate time. When when our son was little, um, he, he fell out of his crib. Uh, he climbed out of his crib, fell, and broke his arm, unbeknownst to me. And so I diagnosed, because I didn't have this, I diagnosed that he's fine. 
Well, Kathy kept on saying he's not fine, so finally she just took him to the doctor, and sure enough, Taylor had broken his arm. And uh, I did not get Father of the Year that year. Um, the, uh, but you can type in a diagnosis, and it'll help you. You know, maybe as a parent, it's a good thing. You know, um, maybe you work with somebody who's got chronic halitosis and lots of body hair, and you think there's got to be a treatment for this. You know, so, something like that. You think you can just help somebody that way. Um, but what what? Um, the other thing it'll do, it'll reverse it. If you know what you have, it'll tell you what the symptoms are. And so I, wanna, I want us to just imaginarily do this for a moment. Since we've been talking about people with some and discontentment is kind of what we'll call the diagnosis. What are the symptoms? What is, what is a symptom of somebody who's living with a diagnosis of, uh, of discontentment? What, what, is, what, is, what would the symptom look like? Well, here's, here's one of the symptoms that might come up. Two years ago, you bought a brand new car, new model. But you bought it in the cycle where they're coming out with a new model this year. And the new model has different curves, different shape. And you look at that new model and you think, what? Got to have that new model, you know? And so you make the decision, I got to, what? I got to do the trade-in thing because I gotta have that new model with those, with those different curves. Or maybe, maybe you go to someone's house, you go visit somebody, and they've got nice new countertops. You're in their kitchen, and, and you see their countertops, and you think, my countertops are hard. You haven't paid no attention to your countertops in years, but now suddenly, just because you see a shiny new countertop, you're thinking, you know, I need new countertops. Or maybe another symptom is this. You walk into your, your closet where your clothes are. And, now think about that for a minute. You have a room in your house for your clothes. You walk into your closet where your clothes are. And, and some of your clothes still have tags on them, which means what? Yeah, you know what it means. You walk in and you look around and you say this to yourself. I have nothing to... Where? That may be a symptom here that you're discontent. Could, just could be a symptom that you're, you're battling this, this, this discontentment. Maybe another symptom would be that your credit cards are maxed out. Here's one of the things that's true about people with this disease is just always playing below the surface is if I just made more money, if I just could raise my, my, my salary up 10% or something like that. Several years ago, there was a, a bestseller, a New York Times bestselling book. It was entitled, The Hunger for More. Searching for Values in an Age of Greed. It was not written by anyone who professed to be a Christian. The book was not written from a Christian perspective. But I want you to listen to what this guy said. It said he said this in the book. He said, more. It's going to come up on the screen. More. If there's a single word that summarizes American hopes and obsessions, that's it. More. More money, more success, more luxuries, more gizmos. We live for more. For our next race, for our next house, for the things we already have, however wonderful they are, they pale in comparison to the things that we might still get. So, here's what I want you to think about now. Is the word more a word that somehow defines your life? Maybe not just in terms of finances and possessions. Have you just become driven for more? Whatever your more might be. 
I want you to listen to some of what God says. Listen to the wisdom of scripture around this. Hebrews 13. God's word says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Ecclesiastes 6 says, it is better to be satisfied with what you have than to be always wanting something else. Jesus said this in Luke, beware, don't always be wishing for what you don't have for real life and real living are not related to how rich we are. And yet, we live in a culture that bombards us with a message that's just the opposite of what God says. Just the opposite of that everything is spiritual. And see, Jesus is telling us there's a better way to live, but it's so hard when we're constantly feeding on a message in our culture of what we don't have. And so we come into a service like this and, you know, we, we, we hope somebody says something and that fills our spiritual drawer. We'll, we'll listen to something for 75 minutes or so, but then we go back out. And for the rest of all the hours in that week, we're inundated with the opposite message. So it's no wonder that it's hard to be content. And I'm not blaming the advertising world on this. I mean, th this starts when you're little, when, when, when you're just a child. One of the things that we do is we compare very quickly. And I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, we never compare down and then feel really blessed. We always compare up and find ourselves living discontent. And you know what this is like if you have more than two kids, okay? Let's say it's ice cream time at your house. And so you, you start dipping out ice cream in, in bowls for your kids to, to come and eat and they all come in and they sit down. What do they look at first? They look at their siblings' bowls. Because even though it's the ice cream of their flavor that they love the most, they cannot enjoy their ice cream if somebody else has more. I can't enjoy it. It may be chocolate fudge triple ripple or something like that. And, you know, but you can't enjoy it because your siblings got more. We're trained that way to be, to be discontent. It's not the mark. It's something in us. See, that's why God's word comes to us. Galatians chapter 6 says and says, don't compare yourself with others. I mean, it'll kill your soul if you compare yourself to others. In Romans 12, here's what, here's what Paul says. Here's kind of an antidote to this. Rejoice with others when they rejoice. When, something gets somebody, when somebody gets new countertops, rejoice with them. When somebody gets a new car, rejoice with them. Don't think I have to have that. Th th this, is, this pushes back again. You rejoice with people who are rejoicing. We, we need to do this. One of the other challenges that I think face people who have some, because we're working, we think, with a limited amount, is, is it's hard to be generous because of this disease of discontentment. But you've heard me say this before, and I'm going to keep on saying it because our souls have to digest and live in on it. Generosity giving is an antidote to materialism as well. Giving is an antidote to materialism. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy on this issue. He said, teach those. He's saying to the church, Timothy, you got to teach the church. Teach those who are rich in this world's goods. Not to be haughty or set their hope on riches which are uncertain. Set it on God. Tell them to be rich in good deeds. Be generous givers. Share with others. In this way, they will 
lay hold of what is truly life. Giving, generosity, is the antidote to materialism. It's how you break free of the gravity force of discontentment. But when you have a limited amount, when you just have some, it's kind of hard. Because you, you know I got to find, I got to figure out a way to make this last. Let's suppose that you go with your family to the gas station. Your dad, you go to your fa- this, the gas station with your family and, you know, sometimes you, you, you decide, I'm going to go in and, and pay, pay in there. And when you go in and pay, they always have right up at the counter treats to tempt you. And sometimes it might be jelly bellies. I don't know if you love a lover of jelly bellies, but they're usually sample size. They're not the Costco size jelly bellies. They're sample size. And, you know, when you're by yourself, you just usually grab you a, a snack size jelly bellies and you take them and you eat them on the way. And you kind of forget that your family's with you, so you're by your jelly bellies and you're heading out back to the car and all of a sudden you realize, I should have bought a bigger size. I don't have much. And... If I, if I get to the car with my little sample size of jelly bellies, those kids, they're going to want my jelly bellies. And sure enough, if I give them the jelly belly bag, by the time it gets back to me, all that's left is licorice. You know? Who wants licorice? And so you may, you may think, I can't, what am I going to do, you know? I mean... What kind of a parent, what kind of parenting lesson would it be? You start justifying. What kind of parenting lesson would it be if I I teach my kids that people are just going to freely give you jelly bellies? That you have no responsibility to earn your own jelly belly. So you justify. And so you take your jelly bellies and you, you tear a little hole in them and you stick them in your pocket. And you drive and secretly eat them. So your kids don't know. You laugh. But, you know. See, we, we all know what it's like to, to, to have some, to not have this endless supply of something. And we want to keep it to ourselves. It limits our generosity. I want to hold on to this. Do you know that's why the Bible, when it talks about generosity and it talks about giving, when it talks about this drawer at all, it always starts with a conversation about something called first fruits. It, 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 the starting point is your generosity needs to start not out of what you lack, but when you got your jelly belly bag, the first thing you do is you walk into the car and say, you start distributing the bag. You, 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 want, you want others to go kind of first. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, the Bible, God's word, talking about this, this habit, this principle, this design of God to say the tithe is mine, it's holy, it's different than the rest of the resources that you have, the money that you have. The tithe is holy. It, it, it tells us this. The purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. Now, most of us, we, we, when we think about this tithing thing, this 10% thing, giving God 10% of what we earn, we think it's because God needs my money. Have you ever heard of the U.S. government seizing somebody's assets? Friends, if the U.S. government could do that, if God wants your money, God will take your money. This is not, tithing is not to teach you 
Not, not, not because God needs your money. It's to teach you to put God first in your life. It's to teach you the best way to live. It's to teach you how to grow in your faith. It's to teach you how to love God and experience his blessing. When you come to understand that everything is spiritual, it teaches you in your heart that here's what matters the most. So just kind of real quickly... I want to close our time together by thinking back to little Reggie and his lunchbox of fish and bread. Okay? And I want to apply it to our reality. Okay? To our reality. Now, th th these, are, these are two fish. Reggie probably was cooked over an open fire. These, are, these were, um, you know, these were deep fried probably. But let's say, let's say that these two fish, you know, they, they represent, they go for your house payment. Okay? Those greasy fish, by the way. Um, they're left over from first service. But that, that, that's your house payment. And then let's say, you know, you got a loaf of bread and, and let's say this loaf, well, this, this goes for your car payment because, you know, you got to have a car. And then, then, then this loaf of bread, this, this loaf of bread is, um, we'll just call this kind of other bills, your electric bill, your cell phone bill, you know, paying for gas in your car, just, just kind of other bills. And, and, and then let, let's say that this, this, this loaf is, well, you got taxes. You may say my loaf's bigger than that baby. You know, you got taxes, so you got you, you got to use that loaf there. And, and then you, you got kids. Kids are expensive. You know, if you got two of them, it's going to take at least one loaf for every two. So you got to factor that in. You know, if you got more than more than two. And then you know, there's recreation, and you know, you got to you got to have some fun. You got to go to movies. You got to eat out. You got to go on vacation. You got to do all these things. So there, there's a loaf. And here's what begins to happen with God. We say, God, all, all my loaves got used for everything else and so this is what we normally do. We just kind of, kind of, kind of give God crumbs. We, we just kind of give God what's left over. That, that, that becomes the way that we approach that drawer. Our, our, our finances. We say, God, I got a limited amount. We forget that all of life is spiritual. All of it is spiritual. We, we want to compartmentalize. And we know, we know this, that when we compartmentalize, we will never capitalize in this thing called life that Jesus says is a gift from him. And I love that we see little Reggie with his little lunch box and his little lunch. He's got five loaves and two fish. You know, and, and, and Reggie, doesn't, Reggie doesn't even say, okay, I'll, I, I'll, Jesus needs my help, so I'll give him 10%. Well, 10% of five loaves, that's a half loaf. Here you go, Jesus. Jesus, I mean, Reggie doesn't even do, Reggie goes all in. Because Reggie knows that all of life is spiritual. So Reggie just rolls it all out to Jesus. And it would have been very easy for Reggie to look at this crowd of, of 12,000 and say, Oh my goodness, you know, I've just got some. And there's all these people, and I'm just a kid. And there's all these people, and I know that guy over there, he lives in a big house. And, uh, uh, you know, somebody else will do something. And I think, you know, we, we live that way 
at River Bluff a lot. We think that somebody else will go to Venezuela or somebody else will go to Ecuador. Somebody else will go to Cuba or somebody else will go do this. Somebody else will take the gospel. Somebody else will go across the street to that neighbor in need. Somebody else will, you know, give sacrificially and generously so the people in Bahama can get some relief. Somebody else will, you know, meet needs that this church has. Somebody else will do that. And while... While the tithe was the Old Testament and that was really what little Reggie was living in and he would have been, you know, it would have served him well to just do that. The New Testament doesn't teach that. The New Testament teaches that all of life is spiritual. All of what I have, all of my sum is, is God's. And I love what being all in did that day. See, Reggie basically said, Jesus, you're the chest that all my drawers fit in. All of them. And I'm going to open every last one of them to you, Jesus. All of them. I'm going to open them to you. I'm all in, Jesus. This is all I got. It's not much. It's not a lot. It's some. But everything that I have, Jesus, I'm in. And that's the invitation of the gospel. That's the invitation that Jesus gives when he says, come, follow me. And I know you, sometimes you feel like you got to hold back, but here's the beauty of this. When you give Jesus all of your sum, Jesus will do incredible things. One of the reasons that more blessings don't flow out through this church into our community into our world is because those of us would some hold on to our some because we think somebody else would more will do something. And what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to say, Jesus, I believe that you, I believe, I, I trust that you will do your best work with my some and I want you to have it. I, I want you to have it, Jesus. I want to see you do miraculous things with my son, not with somebody else's son, but with, with my son, Jesus. I want to see you work. I want to see your kingdom come. I want to see your will done. I want to see you do a lot with some, my son. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we just come to this moment in the service where the invitation is just that that I would bring all of my son to you. That I would give to you what your word tells me to bring every week. That 10% of what is yours. You say it's holy. And you tell me to test you in this. When I look and I see the abyss. And, but you say give. And so Father today I'm coming. I'm coming like Reggie and I'm bringing my all. I'm bringing my loaves. I'm bringing my, I'm bringing my son to you, Jesus. I come by faith believing that when I give, when I sacrifice, when I give of my time or my talents or my treasure, when I give, that even though it's just some, I may not be the most gifted, but it's some. I may not be the most talented, but it's some. But when I give it to you, you're going to do something miraculous, something, something incredible. So I'm choosing today, God, to do 
different with my son. And Lord, I pray today that our hearts would be captured, that that's who you are. That you did not withhold anything. You gave the best first you had, Father. You gave your son, Jesus. And Jesus, you left the glory of heaven. You left everything. And you came to earth. And you gave your life, living sacrificially, living in poverty, living just trusting day by day in your Father in his goodness and you came to give your life for us and so we come to say thank you in this moment once again and maybe you're here for the first time and that message is new to you and you want to know more about why the God of all creation would give you everything for you we'd be glad to talk to you about it and I'll be down here at the end of the service but most of us today are coming to the place for Lord where we come to this point in the service where we normally give you back yours, your tithe. We bring our offerings. And we want to come differently, God. We want to come believing that everything is spiritual because we want to see you do unbelievable, incredible things with our son. So we come. We come to worship you. We come to give what's yours to you. We come to give beyond that generously and sacrificially. We come saying, Lord God, we are all in. And maybe you came today and you want to be prayed for or need to be prayed for. Maybe you look into the abyss and you say, dear God, I need your help. And you just want somebody to pray with you. There'll be people at our crosses on either side of the auditorium after the service. They'll be there to pray for you. If you want to come and talk with me, I'll be around. But just as we we come to this moment where we worship through giving, where we worship through celebration, just thanking God for who he is and what he's done, you just deal with him. You make the decisions that you need to make. And we come now, Jesus, in your name, giving thanks for all that you've given us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.